0: Thanks, Chris. If there, were a, if there were a place where you could check no way on this card, I would check that. I tried teaching six, six grade boys one year. It was not a great experience. <laughs> but I'm eternally grateful for those who taught our kids so faithfully over the years. In many ways, they kept our kids tethered to the church. And so consider that if you would. Well, about 20 years ago, uh, a pastor friend of mine said to me, just kind of matter-of-factly, he said, last Sunday I told my church when Jesus is going to return. And I'm sure the blood drained out of my face because internally I was going, no, 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 you, didn't, you did not say this. He said, yeah, I told him what Jesus said. He said, the Son of Man is coming back at a time when no one expects. I'm like, well played. That's really great. That's the main thing we know about when Jesus is actually returning. We don't know. But I think in every generation, people have wondered, maybe you've wondered, is this the hour? Is this the time when Jesus is going to return? We're given signs of his returning. There will be people, many people will fall away from walking with Christ. There will be false prophets. There will be persecution. Uh, The gospel will be preached to the entire world. So there are all sorts of signs, and there's evidence of those signs in every generation. And so it's natural to ask, is this the time when Christ is returning? And so that's not a bad question to ask, but we just don't have the answer. But there's another question, a related question that is answered very specifically. And that question is, how should we live until Christ returns? Given that Christ may return next week or next year or in a hundred years, how should we be living our lives? Interestingly, that's the exact situation that Jesus addressed right before he entered Jerusalem. In uh, Luke 19.11, Chris just read it. This is what he said, Luke says. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And it's fully understanding, it's understandable why they thought that. Jesus had been telling people, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. It's in your midst. And then there were all these miracles that, that really confirmed that Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the one who would reign on the throne of David forever. And then they were going to Jerusalem, and that's where the king would reign. And so it's very natural for them to suppose that he's going to Jerusalem, and the king kingdom is going to be fully established. Never mind, he had told them repeatedly, no, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. But they just couldn't understand that. And so they thought he was returning. He was going to establish the kingdom immediately. And so Jesus told a parable. A parable is just a a story with a point. And some some parables are very simple. This parable is very complex. There's, There's many different facets of it. There's many points of correspondence between the details in the parable. And in real life. And so we'll have to consider that, consider that carefully. But the parable illustrates that the kingdom is not going to be established immediately, as people suppose. There's actually going to be a long delay. And the parable tells us how we should live as Christ's followers until he returns during that delay. And so that's what we'll consider today. Today is week four of our season of seeking. That's what we've designated these, these uh, six weeks leading up to Easter. And uh, we're learning to follow Jesus by, by studying the gospel of Luke. And so here on Sunday mornings, we've got a reading guide. If you haven't picked one up, feel free to, to get one. You can jump in week four. Uh, it's, very, it's very appropriate to do that. But uh, let's dig into the parable that Chris read, Luke 19, verses 11 through 27, see how we should live until Christ returns. Here's the parable, verse 12, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returned. And so he's a nobleman, he's got power, he's got influence, he's got wealth, but he's not a king yet. So he's going to go to a far off country to someone who has the authority to appoint him as king, and then he's going to return and he's going to reign over the people among whom he had been living. Verse 13, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. And so he gave each of these ten servants one minute each, and a minute was equal to about three months of wages for a common laborer. And so it's a significant amount of money, but it's not an extravagant amount of money. And his an instruction was: take this money and do business with it, make a profit. That's what that's what businessmen want. You want to make a profit until I return. Verse 14, we're told, we're introduced to another group of people, the citizens. They're distinct from the servants. And this is what we read in verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And so we aren't told why, but these citizens hated the nobleman. And uh, later they will be called his enemies. Down in verse 27, verse 27 when they found out that he was going away to secure a kingship and then come back and reign over them, they sent a delegation and this delegation went to this person in authority with a simple message, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, let me push pause on this parable. If you've been reading the Gospel of Luke, you're probably thinking, I know what Jesus is doing here, right? There's all these areas of correspondence. Back in chapter nine, we saw that Jesus is going away. The time of his departure had come. He's gonna be crucified. He's gonna be raised from the dead and then he's gonna depart. He's gonna go back to heaven, back to his heavenly father. And so Jesus is this nobleman who's going away. Second, like the nobleman, Uh, Jesus is going to return as king, even in the birth narratives. In Luke 1 and 2, we we find out before Jesus was born, the angel announced, Mary, your son is going to be the descendant of David who will sit on his throne in a kingdom that will never end. Jesus is the king. One day he will reign. We're going to see next week, again in chapter, chapter 19, called the triumphal entry. Jesus goes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. That's a prophetic passage. And his disciples are going to praise God saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus will return one day as king. Third, like the citizens in the parable, we're going to see that the citizens of Jerusalem end up hating Jesus. And so a delegation the Jewish authorities are going to go to the Romans, the Roman authorities, and say, this man is a criminal. He claims to be a king. He should be convicted and crucified. And so a lot's going on in the parable. and we, We've got those clues already. Back to the parable, verse 15. When he returned, <clears throat> having received the kingdom... He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. If you have a business, you would do the same thing. You've entrusted your resources to someone. You want to know what have you done with it. And so his servants were accountable. Verse 16, the first came before him saying, Lord, your minna has made 10 more, 10 minnas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And so he had been faithful in a relatively little amount of money, about three months' worth of wages. And so he was given responsibility for much. He was given authority over ten cities. Because he was faithful with a little, he would be given much. A similar thing happens with the second servant. Verse 18, and the second came saying, Lord, your mena has made five, five, uh, five minas." And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And so as with the first servant, his responsibility was proportional to the profit that he had made. He had made five more menas, so he was given authority over five cities. He had been faithful in a little. He was given responsibility over much. Now, we come to the interaction with the third servant, and it's get, it gets the most attention, the longest treatment in the parable. And that suggests that Jesus wants us to pay very close attention to the thinking, the actions of this third servant. And this is where the, the real warning comes. And so notice his attitude toward the, the nobleman who is now king. Then another came saying... Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. So it was very honest, right? I mean, he just lays it out there. But as we'll see, his, his words, the master, the, the king would use to condemn him. He says, I knew you're a severe man. You're harsh, you're, you're strict. And actually, I know that you steal from people. You take things that are not yours. You reap where you have not sown. Therefore, I was not willing to take a risk and make you a profit from that minna. So I kept it in a handkerchief. Here's what you gave me, I'm giving back to you. Notice the king's response. Verse 22 He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. You knew that? Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. Now people understand what the, the king said in a couple of different ways. I think that the king is basically saying, okay, let for the sake of argument, Let's say that what you're saying is true. Let's say that I am a severe man. Let's say that I do steal from people. At the very least, if you think I'm that kind of person, at least you could have put it in the bank and earned some interest. A half a percent of interest is better than nothing on my return, okay? And so i who knows? The king may have given him a cul-de-sac, you know, as his reward for, for putting it in the bank. And so verse 24, and he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has 10 minnas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minutes. So they they thought that was very unfair, very unjust. And the king doesn't defend himself at all, but it's worth pointing out that the king did not steal from the third servant. Okay. That minna belonged to the king. He was just taking back what was his, what had been entrusted to him for a period of time. He was the owner of the minna. He could do with it whatever he wanted. Again, if you have a business, you understand this. You say, exactly, I'm entrusting something to you. You're a steward of what I own. In verse 26, the king says, I tell you to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And so this is the way it works. Faithfulness is rewarded with more responsibility. The consequences of unfaithfulness, I'm having a problem with my mic this morning. The consequences of unfaithfulness is lessened responsibility. That's the way it works. That's the way it it works in the real world. In verse 27, the king pronounces judgment on the citizens who hated him, who did not want him to reign over them, as we read in verse 14. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And so again, remember, we're still in the parable here. This is what the king in the parable says. We're gonna have to think very carefully what this means for people in real time who do not want Jesus to be their king, to reign over them. But in the parable, the king did what kings do. You're my enemy, you hate me, you don't wanna be in my kingdom, bring them here, slaughter them in front of me. So there's the parable. It's pretty intense, isn't it? There it is. Well, let's circle back first of all to the question and then we'll pose an answer. Here's the question that Jesus is answering in this parable. How should we live until Jesus returns? And so the parable makes clear that that when Jesus returns, just like the nobleman, Jesus is returning as a king. He is coming to reign. And so this is taught very consistently throughout the entire New Testament. And when he returns, he'll not only be king, but he will be judge. And when he returns, the last person you want to be is the citizen who hated him and did not want him to reign over you. Again, the clear teaching of the New Testament is if you do not want Jesus to be your king, you will not be in his kingdom when he reigns over all the earth, okay? When he establishes the new heaven and the new earth. In the parable, the the king brought the citizens before him and slaughtered them. If you've been reading in Luke, you've seen these, these same kind of brutal punishments, judgments on people. In chapter 13, those that were outside of the kingdom, they experienced weeping and gnashing of teeth In chapter 16, Jesus told the parable about the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man was comfortable in this life, but in the next life, he was in torment. And so it's a time of punishment. Those who are not in the kingdom experience this torment, experience this wrath in ways we can't really understand. But it's brutal. And so... I would say to you, if you're you here today and you're not, not yet a follower of Christ, if you've never trusted in Christ, I would just plead with you to make this a front burner issue in your life. Uh, the fact that you're here and you're listening to this message is very significant. It suggests that you are open to the possibility that Jesus is worthy of your loyalty. He is worthy of your love. He's a worthy king for you. And as you hear the scriptures and as you think, as you pray, as you talk to your friends, I would encourage you to ask the question, uh, does Jesus address the fundamental issue of my life and is he therefore worthy of my faith and my love? And from the perspective of the Bible, the fundamental issue that plagues the human race is sin in the the human heart. Uh, Sin in our hearts is the source of hatred, violence, warfare, racism, all sorts of injustice. And when we're honest with ourselves in our quiet moments, I think we all acknowledge I have sinned in ways that nobody else, nobody else knows about. And I can't do anything about it. I can't pay for my sin. I know when I'm honest, I'd say, even though I have never murdered anyone physically, I have murdered people in my heart with with my thoughts. And what Jesus offers is forgiveness from that, cleansing from that a new heart, a renewed mind, the capacity and the desire to bless people and love people in ways that we don't even think we're capable of doing. And we'll see in Luke in a couple of weeks as we come up up to Easter, that Jesus addressed this fundamental issue of sin on the cross. The wrath of God that we deserved fell upon him. And so if you put your faith in him, you won't experience the wrath of God you, because Jesus experienced it for you. You will experience full and, full and final freedom in his presence. But as we saw last week, Brian taught from Matthew 13, there will be a day when the door is closed when no one will be able to enter into the kingdom. And if you don't let Jesus take away your sin, you will pay for your sin. You will experience the wrath of God away from him. So it's the importance of now. Now is the time to make sure that you are in the kingdom. And so how should we we live? Well, let's let's look at the answer, and I think the one way to say it is we should be doing kingdom business with everything our king has entrusted to us. I think that's what the parable is saying. And that last that last phrase there, everything our king has entrusted to us. Throughout the Bible, we're told that God is the maker and therefore the owner of everything. Psalm eighty nine eleven: the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world. And all that is in it. So since everything belongs to God, everything that you and I have has been entrusted to us. And so we're like the first two servants, we're to have the mindset of stewards. It belongs to somebody else, but it's been entrusted to us for the king's business. And so we should never think like the third servant Our king never steals from anybody. By definition, God cannot steal from you because he owns everything already. Job understood this. When his life was devastated, when his wealth and his family was wiped out, he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He can do that. All things are his. I think the third servant is described in 1 Corinthians 3.15. There Paul describes somebody who loses his reward, but he himself will be saved, But Paul says, as though through fire. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not going to be shamed. You're not going to be miserable throughout eternity in any sense. You're going to experience joy and bliss, but there is the possibility of lost rewards. And and as the the parable suggests, diminished responsibility in the kingdom. The parable reinforces that as followers of Jesus, like the first two servants, we need to see ourselves as stewards. Everything we have, everything we have has been entrusted to us by God for kingdom purposes. And the parable suggests that if we're faithful, with whatever we have, and from an earthly point of view, we've been given different things, different proportions, but if you are faithful with whatever you have in your life, the only life you can live, then there's the possibility of great reward. And the new heaven and the new earth, the kingdom of God, is going to be the most God-centered place imaginable. So it's not like you're going to be puffed up and you're going to have this grandiose role. No, it will all be for the glory of the king but that's the, po- the prospect, that's the possibility. And so even though we don't understand how all this will work, we should take this seriously. Why? Because the king taught it. And we always need to remember that our king is not some harsh taskmaster who's just forcing us and grinding us down and making us do things we really don't want to do. No, he's more gracious than you can fathom. And he, he understands our frailties. He walked among us. He understands our temptations. And so he empowers us. He, 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 he enlivens our imagination to use the things he's given us for kingdom purposes. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, since Christ died for us, we should live for him. And so gladly, joyfully, we should see everything that's been entrusted to us as resources for kingdom business. And so let me just give a couple of a couple of suggestions, ways that, that we might engage this business of our king. And I hope this fills you with anticipation, not dread. I hope you, you have this mindset. What if, what if this is actually true, not for those people over there, or maybe for them, but for me, that I can actually do kingdom business. First thing I suggest, Take inventory, do an inventory, everything you have. I mean, make a list, take 10 minutes sometime, list out everything God has given you. And so think about, of course, your money, your possessions, your car, your house, your spare bedroom, your workshop, everything you have, your car, everything God's given you. Think about your work, your, whether you get paid for it or not. Think about all the relationships that you have because of your work, the people you work alongside, all the people you serve through the work that you do. Take an inventory of that. Think about your spiritual gifting. And this is kind of of your specialization in the body of Christ. Whatever you're motivated to do and whatever you're good at doing, that's basically your spiritual gifting. God has given you this desire and this capacity to do things. That should never be underestimated. We're supposed to be absorbed with our spiritual gifts. And think about the gospel. God has entrusted us us this gospel. It's this message that is the power of God for salvation. So do an inventory. And then second, as you go through your normal week, your normal responsibilities, keep your eyes open for opportunities. And so just come awake and notice, okay, I've got all this. God, how might you use me for kingdom, your kingdom business? I want to go back to to Luke 19 for an intriguing connection, uh, an example of what this might look like. Actually, I'd say what it should look like. You may remember in verse 11, Luke says, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell them a parable. The things that they had just heard were in the context of Zacchaeus coming to faith in Christ. They've been talking about the salvation that Zacchaeus experienced. And you may remember, you'll read it in our reading guide this week. Zacchaeus was wealthy and his wealth was because he was a tax collector and he had overcharged people. When Jesus came to his house and his eyes were open, he understood who Jesus was. He said, Lord, everything I have I'm gonna give half of it to the poor, and everybody I've defrauded, I'm gonna repay them fourfold. Jesus' comment, salvation has come to this house today. Why? If you have a transformation like that in terms of your wealth, that means something radical has happened in your heart. And so Zacchaeus, he, he had these resources, fraudulently gained, but he had these resources, and one of the things he did was give to the poor. The previous chapter, you have the example of the rich young ruler. Jesus said, sell everything you have and do what? Give to the poor and what will happen? And you will have treasure in heaven. He told this man, if you use these resources, you give to the poor, you're laying up for yourself treasures, rewards in the next life, but he refused. And so he forfeited it all. One aspect of kingdom, give, kingdom business is giving to the poor. As you go through this week, ask yourself the opportunity, what has God given me that might benefit the poor, people with less than me? Maybe it's money. Maybe it's a meal. Maybe you don't have money. Maybe you would give friendship, relationship, Maybe you have the opportunity to open doors and make connections for people that they cannot make for themselves. And so the sky's the limit when you start looking at the opportunities linked up with your resources. Another opportunity to do kingdom business involves joining Jesus in his mission. Again, in the the context of of Zacchaeus in in response to those who grumbled because Jesus was eating in the house of a tax collector, Jesus said, well, you need to know, I came to seek and save that which was lost. Chapter 15, you've got the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And as you know, if something is lost, calling a person lost, it doesn't mean they're worthless. The opposite, the only reason you seek something is because it's valuable. You lose your wedding ring, You lose your car keys, you are going to seek it like a maniac, right? Consider as you go through your week, who are the people that are lost, meaning out of place. They're not where they should be in relation to God. They're infinitely valuable, created in his image, but they're out of place. As Brian suggested last week, pray for those people. We don't know how prayer works, but we know it moves the hand of God. Pray for the people in your life who are lost. Befriend the people who are lost, serve them. Look for opportunities to share your your story. Look for opportunities to share the gospel. Karen mentioned earlier, we've got these little uh, invitation cards. It might be appropriate to invite invite a friend to Easter. Maybe they're at a point where they would be open to coming and, hearing what, what cry, who Christ is and what he's about. The sky is the limit. When We see our resources and we look for opportunities. And so God, we're asking that you would, would lead us in these things. We pray, God, that we would be like the first two servants. God, may we not think wrongly of you. and May we not slander you in our minds and think you're, you're harsh or demanding. God, you proved at the cross that you love us more than we can fathom. God, we pray that we would be glad, joyful laborers in your kingdom. God, what a privilege it is to to partner with you and be your your servants in this world. God, give us a glimpse of heaven. May we have the faith to see and uh, just the imagination we need to see how you might be using us, what we have, the little that we have for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: if you're able let's stand together